Welcome, one and all, to Past the Border, the podcast of time and place, where every episode we discover the history behind the world we've come to live in. I'm Miko Cleland, and this episode we're going to delve into another understudied part of history, and I'm pretty sure you'll never have heard of this one. On this journey, there's no real expert to speak of, so we're going to leap straight in with quite a story and rely on good old research to tell us the truth behind the tale. We start at the beginning. What do you know about micronations? There's a comment I loved in a newspaper while researching this, that anyone could have their own 21-gun salute when they step ashore as president, king or dictator of their own land with a pack of firecrackers. And that really does sum up the kind of level of organisation and even the budget we're talking about when we look at these kind of places. The official definition would be that it's a small, self-proclaimed entity that lacks any kind of legal recognition. Sometimes they take advantage of a loophole in the law. Sometimes they're just absolutely off the wall and come out of nowhere. And we're going to talk about the one that came closest to legal recognition. The world's smallest country, to quote that essential reading newspaper, the Torbay Express and South Devon Echo. The Republic of New Atlantis. Now, there's a book about a society called New Atlantis, this utopian state where everything ran well and people wanted for nothing, written in the Tudor era by Sir Francis Bacon. But our particular New Atlantis was founded a little later, in 1964. And have a guess who founded it. Ernest Hemingway's little brother, Lester Hemingway. Now, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree here, and this is an adventure every bit as worthy of writing a book about anything that Ernest did. Born on April Fool's Day and calling himself a certified fool for the entirety of his life, he's anything but foolish in this tale and comes out of it looking rather savvy. The story starts with an obscure natural resource that became essential during the 1800s. It's guano. Hopefully you know what that is, don't you? It's bat and seabird droppings. From the 1840s onwards, guano became the thing to own. It was really useful at this point as fertiliser and a great source of saltpetre for gunpowder. The sources were so small, there was a danger of being cut out of the market. Countries were claiming islands that were sources of guano left, right and centre. Australia, France, Germany, Japan, Mexico, the UK, Hawaii, when it was independent, and of course, the United States of America. You probably know Midway Island from World War II, Christmas Island, and more than a 100 in total that the US claimed this way. And the last time it was used to make a claim was in 1997 for the island of Navassa, next to Haiti. Although that was discarded because a court said that the island was already under American control anyway. But they used the 1856 Guano Islands Act, this remains in the law books even today, and it allows any US citizen to take possession of any island that contains guano in the name of the United States, no matter where, just as long as they aren't already occupied. And to someone as entrepreneurial as Lester Hemingway, this presented an opportunity. He's quoted in the Washington Post in 1964 as saying, there's no law that says you can't start your own country. And yes, that's true, But there aren't really spare islands hanging around to just turn up and claim. So how do you solve that? You'll see how this gets weirder and weirder. Hemingway towed a barge 
about 8 foot by 30 foot, to just inside international waters, a few miles out from the Jamaican coast in the Caribbean. He put this on a shallow bank he found, and he took advantage of this Guano Islands Act of 1856, claiming half of the barge for the United States, and then half became his brand new nation, New Atlantis, coming into being on the 4th of July 1964. So we have territory, and just to show you that this did happen, and people did take notice, I pulled this wonderful description of the place from the Coventry Evening Telegraph from 10th of July 1964. Population 1, area 8 square yards, altitude 3 inches above sea level, when the sea's calm. What else does a country need to be a country? We have a very pretty flag. He designed an upside-down golden triangle with a hole cut out of it on a blue background. That was sewn by his wife. We then need some kind of founding charter, don't we? Which rules would be best if you started a new nation today? America's is quite good, isn't it? Yeah, let's take that one. And by take, I mean take. The founding charter of New Atlantis was an almost word-for-word copy of the seven articles of the US Constitution with the words United States crossed out and replaced with the words New Atlantis. Couldn't make this up. We need a president, don't we? So Lester chose seven voters, and they of course voted for him, which then was sent to the world in a press release and was covered in some detail, the biggest being in Jamaica, where the biggest newspaper in Kingston gave it a six-column front page. Lester promised the United Nations, the people of Jamaica, and the rest of the Caribbean that he would be a peaceful power and would not threaten any of his neighbours. Even he knew how strange this sounded. So he wrote in his message to the New York Post, I know this sounds like a hoax, but there's nothing in the Constitution that says I can't do it. So here comes the big question. Why on earth did this whole thing happen? You could argue, why not? Who doesn't want to run their own country? But we have the words of Lester Hemingway himself here. And he said the whole thing was mostly to have fun. And you can tell he had that. But also, and this is a direct quote from him, published in the News Journal in 1965, to make dough. New Atlantis did have its own currency, by the way, and you're really going to like this. What do you think he called that? The scruple. So the richer you are, of course, the more scruples you have. All the examples of the currency that survive look very strangely similar to things you might find washed up on the beach. Not that this was thought up of at the spur of the moment, or anything like that. We, we wouldn't want to suggest anything of a sort. We've arguably got now all the things that a country needs to exist. But how do you make that money? What can you offer the world on your raft that can bring in all the scruples? I've got two words for you. Philatelists and numismatics. No magic spells involved. Stamp and coin collectors. The big plan was to generate money for the International Marine Research Society. He was a big fan of all kinds of oceanography by selling branded coins and stamps. National New Atlantis stamps were issued in 1964 and 1965. Five different denominations and all celebrating different other nations or world leaders. It was very two-dimensional. They seemed to be designed to catch the attention of subjects in question. Winston Churchill, for example, and President Lyndon Johnson, who they gave the rather superior title of the protector of the free world. 
This all fell apart a little when the Universal Postal Union, which deals with this kind of thing, completely refused to recognise anything to do with New Atlantis, which takes a lot of appeal out of collecting these things. But it did have some advantage. Remember that Johnson stamp? So the White House actually wrote to Lester Hemingway and said thank you for the kind words, which you could argue, although not going as far as actual recognition, as an official note from the United States government itself, is the closest thing to diplomatic recognition that any micronation has ever achieved. And that was agreed by the director of the United States Office of the Geographer in an interview in 1988. Now, if you were to reach over and look at a map, you won't see New Atlantis on any. It sadly didn't last a distance. So what happened? It's a little bit anticlimactic here. There was a storm in 1966, and the raft that was New Atlantis was ravaged. Then fishermen ransacked what was left, leaving nothing. But this wasn't such a half-baked idea, and it really did stand a pretty good chance of success. As well as garnering the support of various other nations and planning specifically to be in international waters, the closest government was pacified by a number of cunning moves. First, Leicester banned gambling in New Atlantis, which calmed Jamaica from the fear that this was to become a den of lawlessness on the edge of their territory, and because Leicester gave that purpose of oceanographic research and even protecting local fishing. It meant that he was largely left alone. There was even an interview with the New York Herald Tribune in 1964 given by a spokesperson for the Jamaican embassy that said the project was good, sound, and called Leicester a decent, well-meaning soul. Leicester died the same way as his brother, committing suicide on the 13th of September 1982, but he certainly didn't live in his famous brother's shadow. There's something you have to admire about him, and this whole escapade, really, we get this impression of such a fantastic storyteller, a man who so few really got to know. And hopefully, if stories like this spread a little further, we can rectify this a little. He did continue to call himself president of New Atlantis for some years after the disappearance of his raft, and he even used that fame to create the position of Commodore, of a luxury island resort in the Virgin Islands soon afterwards. So you could say that the whole project was a resounding success, even if not in the way that Lester originally planned it. I'd like to end on another quote of Lester himself, when referring back to the New Atlantis project from the News Journal of 3rd of August 1965 that sums this whole thing up rather well. Rich people don't do this. Only poor people with dreams and idealists slightly on the shy side. I think we can all identify a little bit with that, and we all can sit and wonder what may have been, perhaps, if New Atlantis was still there today. That's all we've got time for right now, but you can find Past the Border wherever you usually listen to your podcasts. And if you like the episode, please help us to keep telling these wonderful stories by sharing this with your friends and family, leaving a rating or review, and subscribing to be the first to hear about more. It all really helps. Until next time once again... Safe travels.